Father, we ask that you would please guide us by your spirit deeper into the truths of your word and grant us a wonderful, wonderful satisfaction in you because you are able to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever walked into someone's house and just immediately had this feeling within you of, man, I wish I had that house. I wish I had their kitchen. Or have you heard someone talking about their overseas holiday, probably not in the last year or so, but before COVID, talking about their overseas holiday and having a little bit of jealousy come up within you, even... um, some frustration at them, like I, I, I wish I had the money to go on an overseas holiday every year and travel throughout Europe, that would be wonderful. Uh, or someone gets a promotion at work and there's this part of you that immediately thinks, man, I'm way more qualified than that person. What did Bob from accounts get a promotion? I've been slaving away for years. This is coveting, this is what Our passage talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So here in the last of the 10 words in Deuteronomy chapter 5, God says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is where you yearn to possess something, something that usually doesn't belong to you, and it creates a restless longing, even a jealousy within you. Sometimes coveting seems innocent. Uh, Other times there are innocent things like appreciating someone else's house that then create an envy within you where you start to actually tear down their character. Like you start to think they don't deserve a house like that. Why do they deserve that? And here I am in this little shack. When we desire something that doesn't belong to us, we covet. This is uh, what coveting is. And here, as we read in this passage, God forbids that the people desire their neighbor's wife, their house, fields, servants, animals. And this is clearly covering more than simply the unjust act of taking what doesn't belong to you. So we know to to take someone's wife is already covered in the seventh commandment, to not commit adultery and to take any of their possessions is covered in the eighth commandment, not to steal. So this is going much deeper where God is saying, don't, not only don't commit that unjust act, but don't even desire to do that. Don't have that uh, longing within you that wants to take something that is not yours. And this shows very clearly as Jesus does when he appropriates the many of the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and he takes it much deeper to the problem of our heart. Here, this is what God is already doing. Uh, in the Ten Commandments where he's showing that his intention for, his, uh, for covenantal obedience in his community was never simply external conformity to moral actions. It was always going to be a matter of the heart. Things were going to stem from the heart. And we live in a society where our hearts become 
conditioned to normalize coveting. If you've hung around me long enough, you'll know I, I loathe um, what consumerism does to the church and, and to us. Uh, and it is a very um, pertinent uh, issue for us. It's a very timely thing to talk about. Uh, shopping malls, modern advertising through any platform are there to make you covet. That's the whole point. They are there to make you covet. They want you to want something. They want to bring a desire out of you. And like I've shared before, shopping malls and advertising, they don't even need you to have a desire. They're not trying to fill a, a felt need that you have. They are there to create desire within you. You don't even need it when you walk in. You just look at something and you never had a thought before, but you see a, an ad and you think, I, maybe I could use a knife that could cut through a shoe. Like maybe that is something that I, I could use. Uh, and you never had that desire before. And this is what our society does to us. It, it normalizes coveting. It becomes normal to have a jealousy over someone else's belongings. You know, I remember as a kid always saying that, like, oh man, I wish I, I had what you had. I wish I had the parents that you had. I wish I was able to go on the holidays that you do. So this might not even seem that bad to you, but what, what this culture does to us, this culture of coveting, it creates an inability to be content. And this is just quite simply how consumeristic society survives. Uh, if, if consumeristic society could offer what it promises, which is, you know, that a product can satisfy you, then it would kill itself. Um, consumeristic society relies upon false promises. It relies upon a simulated sense of satisfaction because if we were satisfied, we would stop consuming. So consumeristic society is there to actually create a deeper and deeper covetousness, which wants more. It's, um, you know, our, our endless uh, pursuits of pleasure, like traveling the world, climbing the corporate ladder, um, catchphrases like YOLO. I don't know if that gets thrown around anymore, but they're all trying to fill uh, some felt need. They're all trying to fill some need that we have and contentment at its core is to have no need. That's what contentment is. Contentment is the opposite of coveting. The vast majority of those who pursue materialism, money and worldly success are really searching for contentment. They don't know it, but that's what they're really searching for. They want the ability to be satisfied with what they have but they don't get it. As Paul McCartney said when he was interviewed about the famous Beatles song, Money Can't Buy Me Love, he explained, you know, the real meaning of it is that material possessions are very well, but they will never buy me what I really want. Materialism can never buy me what I really want. Money can't buy me love. And we all long for things like love and satisfaction and communion. They are things that consumeristic society can't provide. Our desires for many of the things of this world simply do not satisfy us. Now, desire in and of itself is not all bad. It's not wrong to desire a house, a place to live. We know that scripture says, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, he who 
desires the office of an overseer, desires a good thing. Uh, it's good to desire a wife or a husband, to desire rest and rejuvenation. There are good things that we desire. We are told primarily to desire the Lord. So desire is not wrong in and of itself. But coveting is when we desire things outside of our needs. The age-old dilemma of distinguishing between wants and needs. Coveting is when we desire things that are not profitable for us uh, or are simply sinful. They're things that do not and should not belong to us. So this is more about when our desires are misplaced. Coveting is about misplaced desires. And C.S. Lewis, the famous author, has some very insightful words when it comes to misplaced desires. Some of you may have heard this quote before from Lewis um, we often think that uh, if we are not desiring the Lord or really these desires for material pleasures, they come because our desires are too strong. We're driven by desires. But C.S. Lewis says quite the opposite of this. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Lewis is saying it's ridiculous to desire these things that in comparison to the infinite joy that God offers in Jesus Christ, in comparison to communion with him, it's like making mud pies in the slums. It's, it's ridiculous to think of. So the call to not covet is the call to have our desires rightly in check, our desires rightly placed, to have them directed toward the only place where they will truly be satisfied. And this is the key to not coveting, not that we never have any desires, but that we rightly direct our ultimate desires to the God of heaven and earth. And this is when our desires for, for good things like a house or like marriage become something good rather than coveting. Because as we were singing uh, earlier, seek ye first, that, that passage, seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness and then everything else like food and clothing, everything that you need will be given to you. We need our desires to be directed toward the God who opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. We need our desires to be directed toward him so that our inherent desire our inherent need for affirmation, for reconciliation with our Creator is satisfied. And when we are in that place, then we can take or leave all of these other desires. They don't become things that become uh, absolutes for us or ultimate, things that crush us when we don't get them. It's like uh, the very simple reality of not going shopping on an empty stomach. Uh, you'll buy ridiculous things. I... Um, just very uh, foolishly, foolishly go shopping on an empty stomach and I um, very quickly wander off to the protein bar section because I feel, not that I think that they're good, but I just, they just make me feel better than eating a Mars bar and I eat it as I'm walking around and then I have to go give the empty wrapper 
um, to the person in shame and say, I've eaten this in the store, I still want to pay for it. Um, if you go with an empty stomach, em- empty stomach, you're going to be driven to all of these things that you shouldn't really be getting. Uh, you, of course, want to be full and then you'll shop sensibly for the things you need. Likewise, we need to turn ourselves to the God who satisfies the desires of every living thing. The God who is all satisfying in and of himself. The God who satisfies our deepest needs because he owns everything. And our deepest need is this sin that we have being uh, wiped away so that we can then have communion with our Father. And when we have that and when we are constantly redirected toward that, we can then live a life free from coveting, satisfied, being led by God toward these other desires for good things. Uh, like the house or marriage partner, um, in a way that does not crush us, that doesn't make it an ultimate. So are you directing your desires toward our all-satisfying God? Or would you say that you are living on an empty stomach? Are you uh, living on an empty stomach, searching for all of the this junk food, whatever it is for you, trying to feel yourself that... Uh, only creates more of a restless longing. This is the call to contentment. And in our consumeristic society of desire and increased consumption of possessions and experiences, contentment is one of the key distinctives of discipleship. Uh, There is something tremendously beautiful about the follower of Jesus who can say, I've tasted and seen the Lord is good and I am full. Oh, I'm full. I've had all that I need in Jesus. So you can, uh, I can take or leave that 50K pay increase or that nice house in the affluent suburb. I can take or leave it. Uh, Like Paul said, we, we can learn to be full and empty, to brought high or, or, or be brought low. Uh, there's something beautiful about the follower of Jesus that can say, I'm full. I've had my fill in Christ. He has satisfied the desires of my heart. Now, on this path to contentment, there are three particular aspects that we have to see, uh, similar to what Andrew has already shared the first aspect is that this kind of contentment is learnt through trials a classic passage uh, on contentment that paul um, uses in philippians 4 he explains that he has learned the secret to contentment Uh, and he writes this in prison toward the end of his ministry after he had been through significant trials and hardships and so He says, uh, I've learned the secret of contentment. I'm able to be well-fed or hungry, to be brought high or or brought low because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's how I'm content. So contentment for the follower of Christ is learnt through trials and difficulty. It is a cheap and false contentment that has to rely upon flourishing circumstances. We have to be weaned off of our need for cheap pleasures by God actually withholding things from us and bringing us deeper on this path of the suffering servant. Another classic passage that both Christians and non-Christians are familiar with is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. 
um, leads me on the path of righteousness for his namesake. The opening line of that, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am content. And then how does the rest of the psalm explain how the psalmist David got to that point of contentment? What is this path of righteousness that we are led on? Is it the path of Moses who forsook the pleasures of Egypt in order to take the reproaches of Israel and who had to deal with a stiff-necked people for 40 years? That wasn't exactly flourishing circumstances. Was it the path of Paul who learned his contentment through being beaten, whipped, scourged, shipwrecked, imprisoned? Was it the path of our Savior who was rejected by men, spat upon, reviled, uh, all sorts of shameful things? This is the path of righteousness that we are led upon. The path of contentment is never one of laziness or aversion to hardships. It's actually learnt through hardship. We learn this contentment by our Father graciously guiding on this path that teaches us that He alone will sustain us. He alone is our sufficiency. And that leads us to the second aspect. This contentment is based on Christ's sufficiency. And this is what sets True contentment extremely far apart from complacency. On surface level, someone who is complacent and someone who is content can appear similar in many ways. They both seem to be undisturbed by life's storms. They seem to have some calmness about them. But those who are complacent do not have a calmness that comes from a deep trust in Christ. They simply have apathy. So they may be calm, but they're also never moved to action. Uh, They have a deadly self-sufficiency that is apathetic to the wonder and majesty of Christ. So you look at their life and they appear to be unmoved both by storms, but they're also unmoved by the wonder and majesty of Christ. They're just unmoved. And that's not what true contentment is. Contentment is not complacency. The writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We're not content just for the sake of it. We're content because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We're content because God says, hey, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I didn't withhold my own son So now I will provide everything that you need to walk faithfully before me. Biblical contentment never comes from our ability to provide all that we need. It comes because we realize that our God in Jesus provides all that we need. Biblical contentment is always paired with a deep trust in the sufficiency of Christ to provide all that we need to continue walking faithfully regardless of circumstances, regardless of how pleasant our surroundings are. And it leads us to the third aspect that this contentment is not circumstantial. Uh, So this is not to say that our circumstances um, won't cause us, even drive us at times to grief 
and lament and different emotions. That's, that's not what this is talking about. But because our contentment is based upon Christ's sufficiency and because Christ is sovereign over all things, because he reigns over every square inch of this world, then our contentment is not taken away the moment our circumstances change. Just like Jesus says to his disciples, uh, my joy. So you have grief now, but I'm giving you joy. And the joy that I give to you, no one will take from you. They're not able to because it's my joy and I own everything. If I give something to you, no one takes it away. You're my sheep, my sheep who have joy and contentment. That's mine. I own you. So no one takes it away. Like Paul says, in any and every situation, I am content. It's not circumstantial. It doesn't change in every changing circumstance, which does have the potential to blow us about a little bit. All this means is that we then have the power to realign our view to the God who satisfies us in every circumstance, the one who strengthens us and therefore we can do all things. And this is what sets True contentment miles apart from the contentment that the world offers. The picture of contentment in the world is of someone on a lovely beach at sunset, in a hammock, palm trees around them, sipping a mimosa. Their contentment is totally based upon their circumstances. The moment the uh, tornado comes in and blows everything off. They get flipped off the hammock. Mimosa goes everywhere. Contentment is gone. And, and that's the world's contentment. Whereas the Christian contentment, the true contentment that Paul demonstrates by writing this in prison is one which has a deep underlying satisfaction and trust that all is well with my soul, regardless of how pleasant my surroundings are. This is the kind of contentment that Horatio Spafford, the, the um, famous songwriter who wrote, It Is Well, it's the kind of contentment that after he had lost his daughters, they had been swallowed up by the ocean into death. And as he's sailing over the very seas, he writes the words, When peace like a river attends my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That is contentment. That is Christian contentment. That is true contentment. It is well with my soul. Now, I want to talk about the missional opportunity for Christian contentment. We've spoken about the aspects of Christian contentment, and I want to uh, finish by talking about a missional opportunity of Christian contentment for us as a community and as individuals, and then finish with um, how we actually get this contentment. So contentment is a powerful part of Christian mission in a discontent and restless society. This has been something that I, I've thought about a lot. I studied a lot uh, when I was overseas studying missiology um, and I'm just totally convinced that contentment is fundamental to Christian mission, to the, the disciple of Jesus. In a culture where more is better and many, as I said, are totally dependent upon controlled circumstances to have contentment and rest, the Christian community, which has a particular contentment in their all-satisfying God, stands out as distinct. 
there is something particularly distinct about the content community. It is distinct when communities practice simplicity and contentment by prioritizing giving way more than receiving, by being a community that is always looking to give rather than consume. Uh, Communities that prioritize giving and receiving because they don't want to be conditioned by the need to simply consume, consuming entertainment, consuming services, uh, consuming more ministries. Uh, the, the community that prioritizes giving over receiving not only follows, follows the words of Jesus that said it is better to give than to receive, but they stand out as distinct in a culture that really only wants to receive Most of the time, the only giving is done so that they can then get something in return. And so it's a wonderful thing for the community to give because we recognize the gift of giving is good in and of itself, regardless of what we get in return. Uh, Communities which practice simplicity and contentment by always asking the question, do we actually need this? Do we need to do this? Do we need more ministries? Or is this simply because we have bought into the false modern idea that uh, for something to be successful and productive, it needs to be new? New is good. Have we bought into this idea that we just need to start new ministries simply because that's a, a false idea that it's going to be better just because we start something new? Do we need to do this event or will this simply result in more people being totally exhausted because they are serving in so many different roles they are too busy to genuinely be present with the Lord and present with the people around them Uh, do we need to spend this amount of money on a new sound system or a new building or could this money be better used to support another fellowship Uh, that is far less resourced than us? Do we actually need to do this? These communities that practice simplicity and contentment have this culture which it, it fosters the kind of satisfaction, the kind of contentment that glorifies God rather than a discontented need for more. I worry that a lot of Uh, things done in the name of Christian mission are are driven out of discontentment. We're just dissatisfied. We're unable to wait and be content. And so we need to just start more things. Uh, We're driven by this idea that bigger is better. There is a, a, a wonderful witness in our society when we live content. And Uh, One of the greatest examples of this is the picture of the community of the early church in Acts, a a passage that, you know, everyone goes to when they're talking about um, the picture of what what true Christian community looks like in Acts 2, 42 and 47. Um, And I don't want to create this false idea that, you know, the church was just sitting around singing Kumbaya all the time, no problems, no complexities. Um, Just read a few chapters later in Acts 5 and Acts 6 and all of a sudden you have people dying because they've withheld from the community and people getting overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so um, there were complexities that came. But one passage that um, highlights the the beauty of contentment is in Acts 2.46. 
where it says day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is an overview of the community. And the word for generous there is actually a word which means simplicity. They received their food with glad and simple hearts. And you get that picture from the way Luke is describing this community. Anyway, they just attended the temple together. They broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and simple hearts. And like I said, this isn't to say that there weren't complexities. But one of the key differences is that I think the complexities that arose in Acts came organically. They were unavoidable either because God had ordained it or they were unavoidable complexities. Whereas often we create complexities because we fail to distinguish between wants and needs. And so we have complexities because we've got this uh, huge sound system in the church that requires three people to run it. But that person's on the welcome roster and then that person's also on the kids roster. And we've got all of these complexities that we actually just create ourselves. And the community in Acts has this foundation of simplicity in the hearts of the people where they were just totally content with the basic practices of Christianity, of teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, praying together. Everything else was either done from this place of simplicity or it was an optional extra. And if if we don't think we need to do it, we don't do it. They had this wonderful satisfaction centered around the gospel Something incredible had happened in Jesus Christ and we just want to be a community that just gathers around that and then out of the joy in that mission spontaneously overflows from that and so we share faithfully. This is a wonderful witness to the surrounding culture because it demonstrates that there is actually a genuine satisfaction on offer to people That is not dependent upon you having your perfect job or money in the bank. There is actually a satisfaction on offer from the God of heaven and earth that is not necessarily circumstantial. And this has big missional implications because God's mission is primarily about his glory. And he is glorified when his people have joy and contentment in him like Piper says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And uh, I think at at some stage in the modern church, and I don't want to, um, uh, you know, we need to own this as well. So I'm not speaking from this place that I've got it all figured out. Um, We are part of the modern church, but we've got it wrong at some stage where we kind of tend to think of the best witnesses to Christ as like the famous ex-sports star or celebrity that is now a Christian. We bring them out for testimony night and invite our friends as though, you know, that's going to be a wonderful God-glorifying witness. And don't get me wrong, um, I don't want to speak any less of that Christian who may have fame but is genuinely following the Lord. Praise God for that. But the thing is, the professing Christian who has millions of dollars and worldly success doesn't easily glorify God. You know why? Because everyone in the world wants that already. Whether they're pursuing the Lord or not, they all want success, money, fame, status. But very few people 
want to lead a quiet life of self-denial, serving others, bearing reproach for the sake of their God. Very few people would want to, like Andrew, stay in a job that they hate for the sake of witnessing to this incredible God. People don't want that in and of themselves. So when someone is transformed and does that with a profound joy and satisfaction, how that glorifies God. When someone does that, when someone just has joy in mundane work because they're doing it for the Lord, that is something that glorifies God. Like Paul says to the Corinthian church in his first letter, hey guys, remember when God called you, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you of noble birth. He's basically saying to them, hey, there was nothing really special about you guys socially. Like there were a few people in the early church that seemed to have quite high roles, but the vast majority of people, there was nothing inherently special about them. And Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has always been in the business of using weak jars of clay to display his glory. And so in a culture of discontented longing for more possessions, more status, more experiences of happiness found in the materially perfect life, in that kind of culture, the life of someone or a community who forsakes these things because of a deep satisfaction in Christ will stand out as distinct and bring glory to God. Christian contentment is a powerful witness to the surrounding world when they see a people who do not have unquenched desires for traveling the world, climbing the corporate ladder or you know living a little before we settle down. We don't have those desires that crush us because we have an all-satisfying God who has totally ravished our hearts, who has done something incredible, who is worthy of every ounce of our devotion. This is a powerful witness in this consumeristic and discontent society. Finally, very quickly, three applications of how we foster this kind of contentment in our lives. Firstly, we need to ruthlessly eliminate things which promote misplaced desires. Ruthlessly eliminate things which promote misplaced desires. Uh, I'm borrowing from Dallas Willard's famous statement that um, someone, I think it was John Mark Comer, wrote a book taking that thing of the ruthless elimination of the hurry. And um, I'm taking that because I think it's a very good... Uh, phrase that captures that this is not just something light that we, you know, if when we feel like it, when we get around to it, we'll try and eliminate things which promote misplaced desires. We have to ruthlessly eliminate things which promote misplaced desires, things which in our lives try and simulate a sense of satisfaction, yet which actually leaves us discontent. So for you, this might be no more online shopping if you do that. No just browsing at malls. No things that create a longing for more. No watching TV series which paint this picture of a glamorous life that makes your life feel so inferior 
and makes you covet that lifestyle. For me, months ago, when we were trying to search for a house, it was uh, no more looking at realestate.com. That was a terrible thing for me. It created a uh, discontentment within me. It was unhealthy. And we have to be ruthless in the elimination of these habits, which create coveting and discontentment. Second application, very simply, we pray for satisfaction in God's unfailing love. We do exactly what Moses did in Psalm 90 verse 14. We pray, Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. When we pray that, we are reorienting ourselves. We are realigning ourselves away from consumeristic society, which says, satisfy me with new products, a new car, a new house, new experience. And we're saying, satisfy me, God of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, because you are all satisfying. Satisfy my heart. Get rid of discontentment. Magnify yourself so that I would have a genuine satisfaction in your unfailing love and finally very simply as well we have to see Jesus as all satisfying we have to take the place of the Samaritan woman in the gospel of John who um, came across this all satisfying Messiah while she was at a well and in response to uh, Jesus's um, question uh, or in response sorry to her asking Jesus about the water that he's asking for uh, Jesus says everyone who drinks of this water this water that you're going for this natural water everyone who drinks of this will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life we need to see Jesus has all satisfying. We need to see how our physical hunger ultimately points us to our deep spiritual hunger, which only Jesus as the bread of life can satisfy. We need to see how our thirst points us to the fact that Jesus is living water. The cup that will never run dry. We need to see how our longing for that promotion or job status is actually a longing for affirmation that we all have which will only come about, the satisfaction of that affirmation will only come about when you receive the affirmation, the pleasure of your Father because you are in Christ. We need to see how even our need for rest, uh, vacations that we go on that aren't necessarily bad, they are merely pointing us to the fact that we will always have restless hearts until they find their perfect rest in God in this all-satisfying Savior.